Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Riel Miller. Riel started his career at the OECD in Paris in 1982. He then went on to complete his PhD in economics in 1987 and then worked for the Ontario government before returning to the OECD to work in the International Futures Program. In 2005, he founded an independent consultancy and in 2012, he joined UNESCO as the head of foresight. Riel is a practitioner researcher who has designed and implemented hundreds of projects around the world. In all these projects, Riel walks the talk of co-creation, harnessing the collective intelligence of everybody from CEOs, prime ministers to shop floor workers and school children. Welcome to FuturePod, Riel. Thank you, Peter. Very much a pleasure for me to, to be with you and, and to have this opportunity. Thank you and uh, congratulations on this terrific uh, series that you've got going. It's fantastic to, to have you so we can talk and share it with the community. So question one, Riel, is the one where everybody gets the chance to explain their story of how they became a member of the Futures and Foresight community. So what's the Riel Miller story? The question you, you asked me at the outset about uh, what's my story, I think it's, uh, it's like everybody else's story, which is that there was no telling what was going to happen in advance. And I learned things as I went along and I was, uh, I think, lucky in many ways and, and had the good fortune to be able to take advantage of uh, serendipity. But the orientation, I think, that pushed me to, to walk through certain doors rather than others really had to do with the question of the, the inadequacy that I felt with the kind of political aspirations of my time. I mean, I grew up when I was a kid, the uh, ban the bomb and a very deep existential fear that resonates or echoes uh, some of the fears that I think are uh, inhabiting young people today when they think of climate extinction. But uh, the atomic bomb and the Cold War and uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of uh, President Kennedy and uh, all those yeah. things, the Vietnam War and President Nixon, and they were highly formative for me. But equally, the, what seemed to me to be the bankruptcy of the existing perspectives on the world in, in the following sense, in a fairly specific sense, is that yeah. I couldn't imagine, even if I perfected, even if I took a normative scenario and I rolled it out and said, aha, we do this right, we do that right, we do everything right, and we really, really, really succeed. Will that be the kind of world that I want to see? Uh, will it correspond to my values? Will it be something that I think actually resonate with my, not entirely articulate, meaning broader than just what words can convey, sense of what it means to be human in this universe? And so that underlying sense of dissatisfaction or inadequacy of even good policy, of even good, let's call it in, in the simplistic sense of um, positive futures, thin idea of static utopias, uh, in other words, endpoints uh, of, of the future, 
meant that I was looking for another way of seeing, that the existing way of perceiving and crafting one's moral stance in the present, meaning how to make a difference in your own terms uh, and in your own historical context, I just felt that it was not adequate to the task. The frameworks we had at the time were not adequate to the task. So I wandered around and from a career perspective, and I didn't have a, a linear career or a plan at all. <laughs> <laughs> I simply kept on kind of wondering and you know, searching for the liminal or the fissures or the, the traces of the not yet articulated, the emergent, the inventive, the, the novel that would help me to say, how can I see things sufficiently differently? And the power of the future wasn't obvious to begin with. I mean, I have a PhD in economics. Uh, The power of the state or collective action initially looks like uh, it's the, the terrain or the field of predilection for playing a role in the world around us. And listening to some of the climate change, climate extinction, some of the young people you see how they target the state because the state is the incarnation of the collective in the context of the nation. But pretty quickly, I felt that that was a zombie, meaning this is a living dead institution, in many ways causing more harm than good. You know, that's too cliff-like in terms of, of, of thinking about change. But the nation state and the inertia of the nation state, along with its fundamental norms around bureaucracy, command and control, technocracy, and embedded in that something about the future. And it's that embedded bit that, that I started to, to kind of tease at for a variety of reasons, um, some of which were just kind of lucky and happenstance, including my first management job uh, in 1988, uh, when, I, when I started to look at the future of the community college system in uh, Ontario. And so I'd already been kind of thinking about how the future enters into people's perceptions and obviously choices. And I really want to try and distinguish the two because I'd been at the OECD and I'd seen the power of forecasting, but also the, 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 the clearly deceptive nature of what was going on, meaning everybody knew that the forecasts were basically going to be wrong but they preferred to believe in them than to take another approach. And that was more a comment on our epistemic norms and culture than on anything else. It, it meant that some, for some reason, we thought that we would be safer, more secure, if we could claim certainty. And that seemed to me to be a, a peculiar psychological uh, bias in the, the basic approach uh, to constructing the relationship between humans and the world around them. And this, you know, this is, this is part of an objectivist, empiricist, but also, <clears throat> from my point of view, a continuation of a kind of science as God, meaning uh, uh, religion and God gives you a reason to think that, that, well, God knows the future, so you can just leave it to God, that's fine. Uh, but then scientists know the future. Well, you can just leave it to scientists. And that faith in the other, and then that kind of technocratic objectification of deterministic reality, all of that just seemed very suspect to me. And one of the initial kind of antidotes, which is just kind of the normal thing that comes to hand, 
is the way in which legitimacy is is created. And so when I ran this uh, Vision 2000 exercise in 1988, I knew that it would have been easy, having come from the OECD where we did econometric and technocratic uh, forecasting, uh, it would have been easy to have just replicated that epistemology, that methodology. But since I wanted to lean against that in some senses and try and find broader and and, and different set of, of approaches, the key was to create a participatory process that would build legitimacy for other ways of seeing. And so that was my basic trial by fire, in a way, of uh, doing collective intelligence knowledge creation. And I didn't, of course, realize what it was at the time, per se. But over the years, uh, it's over 30 years ago now, I came to realize that there was a whole theory and practice of how people create knowledge together. And I also started to see how that had elements that were connected to base uh, a scientific approach, not science in the sense of certainty or being able to predict certainty, but science in the sense of being able to describe. And in, in some senses, to describe in a relatively narrow temporal frame, meaning the description is going to change and the way you describe and the reasons for describing will change over time. So if I'm describing the function of the political system today or of a cultural artifact, a movie, I'm describing it from where I stand today. And in fact, I can't even recreate the language and the feelings and the kind of moods that uh, pertain, let's say, uh, 50 years ago uh, when, when something, something happened in the past. Um, and all of that, that gave me the sense that we needed to be able to create more real-time, more present, embedded in the present approaches. It took many years of designing and testing and working with people to think about the future, because that's primarily what I became, which was a kind of architect of processes for thinking about the future, yeah. to begin to see where the the greatest difficulties and kind of uh, blind spots were. And what became evident to me pretty quickly, but it took a long time to figure out some solutions, was that it's very hard to imagine the future. You know, you and I and many of the other practitioners, we we do, we we work with people and we ask them to think about the future. And and what's striking is that it's, it's, it's generally speaking banal and mostly people are saying the same thing. And mostly they're saying what they read in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago or whatever. So the, uh, and all of them are embedded in in the same narrative structure of a hero's walk or a hero's voyage. And all, most of them are embedded in some form of progress, which is, could be growth or it could be improvement or it could be betterment. And so the narrative framing and the analytical framing, that, that the only foundation upon which their imagination can be articulated, because that's the other thing, is that the future can only be imaginary because it doesn't, you can't go and touch it. You can't bring back evidence. And so the framing, meaning the reasons and the uh, uh, analytical categories become very central. And so... Over the years, I I basically was able to test uh, later on when I went back to the OECD at the International Futures Program, and then as an independent consultant before I came to UNESCO, uh, and here at UNESCO also extensively, I've been able to test different heuristics, different tools, different methods, which allow people to, to reveal to themselves the anticipatory assumptions that allow their imaginations to be meaningful. Now, that's the, the collective intelligence anticipatory systems framework, which, which has, and those are two distinct parts that have been at the, at the core of the work I've been doing over the last decade. And 
I think that the, the aspect of this story that to me is the red thread that runs through it is the feeling that we were basically working, at least when I was being taught in school and cutting my teeth, as it were, in the policy world, because I was an advisor and participant in government activities for many, many years, still today, was an objectivist ontology. And if we move to a relational ontology where, where, and, and a dynamic one, and if we pick up the, the Robert Rosen anticipatory systems places anticipation at a biological level, the search for a diversity of anticipatory systems, a diversity of reasons, and crucially, ontological distinctions between different kinds of future uh, really provides, I think, a foundation for future studies that it hasn't had sufficiently up until now. Meaning it's been very difficult, I think, as many of the eminent and, and, and brilliant uh, colleagues that we have uh, in the field know, to provide a kind of shared research and theoretical framework for our discussions and to get the field beyond the the kind of quicksand and, and, and siren song of telling people about particular scenarios and particular futures. And because of the, the, the strong desire that people have in the current world, which I think is, is one of the key issues about futures literacy, is to change what people yeah. want, uh, to change the questions that people ask. But in today's world, the question they ask is, well, what's going to happen? Tell me so I can make my plans. And if the future studies field uh, caters to that itch, then we end up being preoccupied with telling stories. And, and we end up being trapped into situations where people will say, well, if you're a storyteller, tell me which one you like the best. And then there's some storytellers who say, I'm telling you that story because I believe that story. And I believe I have a moral imperative uh, to make that story convincing, scare the hell out of you, and make you do something that I want you to do. Um, and I think that that's fundamentally a betrayal of future studies. And in order to be able to resist that siren song, and that even, even the personal desire to be an evangelist or, or an advocate for a particular scenario, we really need to say that future studies is about anticipatory systems and processes and about understanding why and how people imagine. And this provides us, I think, with a foundation, not only that connects up to biology, for instance, and mathematics, but also to psychology, cognitive science, uh, sociology, political science, anthropology, etc., and literature, because it means that we're treating something that's as universal from a descriptive perspective, as meaning we use statistics, which are aggregative and macro and obscure much of reality because much of reality is specific and not macro not general but we use statistics to describe the world in the same way we use the future to pay attention to certain things to notice aspects of the world around us and if we can take a futures literacy anticipatory systems and processes approach what we do is we actually focus on the underlying ways in which images and imagination play out, rather than focusing on what to me are the symptoms, meaning the scenarios uh, and, the, and the constantly changing images of the future uh, that we use as the world around us changes and therefore our ideas and our imagination and our, our desires and our hopes and our fears change as well. 
So it's it's been fun. Okay, Riel. The second question is one where I invite the guests to talk about a framework, or in yours, we've got the anticipatory systems framework or your meta framework. So, do you want to explain that framework, that sort of epistemological you know, way of doing future's work? Yeah. Given what I've just said about uh, kind of anticipatory systems and perception, seeing and doing, I've been keen. Uh, to walk the talk of, of my own thinking, to see if I can tease out uh, and expose different anticipatory systems and processes, to see if we can research, catalog, categorize, analyze uh, the anticipatory systems and processes that are out there. I mean, that's a research objective. In order to achieve that kind of research objective, you have to have people who are ready to share, and you also have to have people who are ready to learn. Because you can't scaffold up or you can't uh, go deeper into anticipatory systems without people themselves starting to become conversant with what their anticipatory systems are. If you're trying to design, and that's, that's what this is about, designing processes. If you're trying to design a process where people peel back and begin to fill in the attributes of their own anticipatory systems, both the narrative and the analytical frames, that are the source of their images and imagination, descriptions, imaginary uh, descriptions of the imaginary future, then you need to essentially design a learning process. But of course, it has to be a learning process that, that engages people, that people want to, want to be part of. And so basically what I've done is I've described the three primary kind of performance goals of the Futures Literacy Laboratories that I've been designing and implementing for you know, probably about 20 years now, if not more. And those labs function on a collective intelligence knowledge creation foundation. That's the, the underlying framework for creating knowledge. They're laboratories in the, in the very strict sense of the fact that we're bringing material, test hypotheses in a controlled context that's co-designed. And it's co-designed because in order for people to be motivated to dive into this and to learn, the topic needs to be a topic they care about. They also need to be aware of the kind of different dimensions of the topic, uh, the future of their restaurant, the future of their government, the future of their uh, company, in order to be able to debate, discuss, invent, uh, challenge, flesh out uh, their images of the future. And so uh, Futures Literacy Laboratory is a learning by doing action research process that reveals anticipatory assumptions to the participants and to observers, researchers. It initiates people into their first kind of experience because the vast majority of people have not thought about how they think about the future into different aspects of what it means to be futures literate. And generally speaking, it also helps them to rethink the topic that they're working on. Now, as you may know, in chapter one of Transforming the Future, the book that came out last year, I try to provide a what I call a futures literacy framework based on epistemological and ontological categories. And the idea of the futures literacy framework is to be able to uh, understand the design of a futures literacy laboratory and obviously other processes, because I'm not at all claiming 
by the way, and it's very important to make this point, that uh, futures literacy laboratories are the only way to detect people's anticipatory assumptions. That would be absurd. Uh, there are many different ways to detect people's anticipatory assumptions. It turns out that futures literacy laboratories are more or less desi designed specifically for that purpose amongst others, but I'm not at all claiming that, that the only way to reveal anticipatory assumptions is through futures literacy laboratories. Be that as it may, the futures labs actually have been able to illustrate on many different occasions the different kinds of anticipatory systems that people are using uh, and to take people through a process that is that can be targeted on the basis of the futures literacy framework. And the futures literacy framework distinguishes to just keep it to three out of the six different kind of uh, categories. The, the forecasting, the uh, preparatory, and open novel or emergent aspects of thinking about the future. And there are people and, and situations where a futures literacy lab remains within the, what I call, anticipatory assumptions want framework, and you can design the process along those lines. And from the practitioner's point of view, and I've heard this from many colleagues, and it's been very gratifying, people say that the futures literacy framework is very useful from a design perspective because it makes clear what we're trying to do, uh, why we're using the future, and how to use the future. So this is, to me, also very positive from the perspective that the futures literacy laboratory uh, meta framework opens up a whole series of different directions for research and for application. And also, I mean, really puts design, but design on the basis of a theoretical foundation and practical feedback. It, it puts design at the forefront of what we're doing. Riel, could you just talk through for the listeners an example of a workshop? Yeah, this is uh, you know going to be very familiar in many ways. I mean, you know, basically somebody comes along and says to you, uh, I want to think about the future. And then they look around and they, they try and find somebody who's uh, got some experience doing that. And they say, well, uh, yeah, okay, can, can you help me? And uh, that, that's what happens. So that's, that's what I call the initiation, first contact. And it happens to all of us. And you know, I, I run around the world and give talks and you know, through different uh, channels, people, people come and say, please, <laughs> baby, I want to think about the future. Okay, okay, but uh, you know, let's just make sure that that uh, we we understand uh, each other well. You know, what what's behind this? What 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 are you trying to do? Have you thought about it before? Have you been disappointed, etc.? And quite often, uh, I want what I'm trying to identify is, is people who want horoscopes or people who want McKinsey uh, or people who want an OECD forecast. There's plenty of suppliers out there. They will be very happy with a, a closed systems predictive extrapolatory. A set of scenarios, which can be more or less uh, diverse, uh, baby bear, mama bear, papa bear, or good, bad, and ugly, as I call them, you know, which are the standard scenario categories. And that's fine. So uh, generally speaking, I can do that. I've done that many times throughout my career. But these days, that, that's primarily not what I'm designing. Rather, uh, they say, you know, like, okay, yeah, we're, we're ready to do something a little bit different. But we're ready to, to think about how we think about the future a little bit. And we're ready to challenge our ideas about the future and it's you know it's pretty vague people don't have a, a strong sense of what that means but they're game and then we say okay let's let's roll up our sleeves and do a co-design so that's the second phase and the co-design is, is fundamental because it it's the moment when you begin to specify from a laboratory perspective 
the, the introduction of the participants. The book has 14 case studies in it, which uh, show different degrees and levels of, of uh, Futures Literacy Lab. But I mean, the, there are many, many examples, and I, I hesitate to just, just pick one out of, out of a hat, as it were. The, the process of, of selecting the participants and determining the way in which the topic is framed. You know, are we talking about uh, it was it was interesting. I was I was working with some people on the future of the financial sector uh, recently, and somebody from the financial sector said, "Look, we did a futures exercise the other day, and it was called the future of banking. And really, it, it just meant that people thought about banks in the you know in the next 10, 15 years. And and there's a lot more to this than banking. And banking is just you know it boxes in their thinking right away. What we should be talking about is about the financial sector. And then somebody said. Well, no, not really the financial sector. We can be talking about the way in which society understands intertemporal assets and credit and legitimacy and confidence. And yeah, then you're getting to the, to the broader way of articulating it. And also, it creates an invitation for people to use their imaginations. Now, of course, it makes it a little bit more difficult because you're not dealing with things in the past. And you're not dealing with existing categories exclusively. Uh, you're creating a kind of a window into invention and the discovery and, and formulation of, of words that didn't even exist uh, before people said, oh, we need to think of this. Uh, what is it? But that co-design allows you to create a process which goes through the learning curve parts of a, of a futures literacy lab. And the learning curve parts are the very standard Dewey uh, learning cycle where you have to start where people are at. You can't expect people to, to not begin from where they understand things. And so the, the phase one of a futures literacy lab involves the move from tacit to explicit on probable and preferable futures. And when you ask people about probable and preferable futures on the topic fairly dear to their hearts, they've got plenty to say. <laughs> they've, got, they've got plenty to say. And they've got plenty to tell each other. And they learn a lot about each other because this is a collective intelligence process. And as they try to verbalize, to, to express in words their ideas about the future, which of course are imaginary because you can't go and touch it, they negotiate shared meaning amongst themselves. And they begin to practice the basic mechanism of a laboratory, a collective intelligence knowledge creation process, which sets you up at the end of phase one to say, look, you are thinking of, of the future in terms of probable and preferable futures. That's what you're accustomed to doing when you think about the future. Now, what happens if, if, if we strip away that probability and we strip away that preference and we just say, here's a future that's strange, but strange from the specific point of view that it's not based on probable or preferable. We're asking you to, to let go of that teleology and in that sense move into an ontologically distinct kind of future. Now, this is a very disconcerting move from phase one to phase two and people don't know what to do a lot. And we give them, you know, heuristics like build a sculpture, play a card game, uh, use the causal layer analysis to deconstruct key concepts, uh, take a, a Bourdieu day in the life perspective uh, on how things function and operate. And it's, it's heavy slogging. It's the steep part of the Dewey learning curve. Uh, and people need to be coached and have a, uh, you know, a, a good facilitator to help the, the process along. But what comes out of that is, is A, an appreciation of the extent to which their thinking about the future has been circumscribed, channeled by the desire to predict and the desire to be normative. That's a little glimmer. It's not big. It's just kind of, oh, huh. 
Yeah. Funny thing there, I let go of probable and I let go of preferable and all of a sudden I started to see other things. And then, of course, they also begin to realize the extent to which they can relax their preferable and probable assumptions. So they begin to question what they were doing in phase one. And so phase three is kind of a consolidation of this realization that you can identify your anticipatory assumptions. You can become more sovereign, more, more empowered with respect to your anticipatory assumptions. You can actually alter from a paradigmatic perspective or an ontological shift your anticipatory assumptions. And that all of that provides you with both a way to be creative and reassess your endogenous or probable and preferable planning and colonizing approach to the future. But it also allows you to begin to see the extent to which the future is simply something not of its own interest, but a foil or a mirror that illuminates the present. And that its really critical role in this respect, which does not deny the importance of the planning and prediction that's dear to the hearts of so many, but opens up what I call the, the kind of second eye or the second leg, so we can walk on two legs and see the world with two eyes, of future enhancing our ability to detect novelty in the present and stopping at that point, meaning that by identifying aspects of the world around us that don't make sense or are invisible on the basis of extrapolation, we have enlarged and enriched our relationship to the present. Yeah. And for the most part, <clears throat> I want to stop right there because the question of what you do with that, the question of the choices you make, from my perspective, really takes us beyond future study. In other words, there's for me a very important distinction here between search and choice. And I think the dynamics and the systems and the processes of choice, which are, of course, as we know, uh, not rational, <laughs> is an important field, but it's for me a frontier uh, from the point of view of future studies, where if we revealed uh, more effectively, the scenarios that people want to use with respect to planning and preparation. If we've revealed the way in which images of the future allow you to understand the present in new and different ways, then essentially we've created the menu for people to use in the world around them. What they choose on the menu, I think it would be a betrayal of all of this to say, aha, because we understand methods for building menus, we know that you're going to like the egg rolls. <laughs> better than the uh, the fried chicken. And to me, that's way out of line. It's a disciplinary uh, boundary that we should be very careful not to cross unless there's very specific circumstance. If I play back what I've heard described, and I, I have read it in the book, but what you described to me there, what I'm imagining real is that is that you're making people more literate in how they understand the future. And if I was to give it a, a kind of shorthand is, you're trying to let people learn from the strange and weird rather than turn it into the normal. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that's kind of perverse about the current dominant framework is that it makes uncertainty out to be this terrible evil. <laughs> now, uncertainty is the only certainty. And so, so we're setting ourselves up for you know, cognitive dissonance on, on a huge scale. If you can create a framework in which people see that uncertainty is this resource because it's opening up creative opportunities for them to be moral or effective in their own terms, 
and that in order to do that, they have to be able to be more inventive and more creative. In other words, take advantage of one of the, the virtues that we trumpet, which is diversity, <laughs> and using that diversity to create multiple perspectives and to see things we did not see before, then the unknowable in advance and that those things which we can invent become much more useful. And so, I mean, when you say weird and strange, you know, it, it's again quite striking, which is that our language and our the structures of our discourses are so constraining. They're so channeled into particular ways of being. In, in the Futures Literacy Lab, one of the key elements is to, is to create more comfort with just being creative and surprising yourself. Yeah. But of course, surprise is an enemy for a plan. Yeah. Planning hates surprises. And so we're in this, this absurd world where we're trying to be some in some universe that's not ours because ours thankfully from my point of view is full of surprises all the time back to your earlier point for the people who generally come and talk to us about challenges they have they're generally dealing wicked complex emergent problems that they don't have uh, ready solutions for and the notion that certainty even a view that the future was knowable would suggest that, well, if it's knowable, then do we think we're doing a reasonable job now? Do we think we're heading closer to a solution now? <laughs> the thing is that there is that there's this curious, I mean, it, it's hubris from my point of view. It's, it's a lack of modesty, which is in that framework, if you have a wicked problem, the, the idea of wicked problem, I mean, from my point of view, no problem is wicked. It's humans that are wicked. But I mean, it's this kind of notion that things can be solved. And, and I guess the idea of solution spaces needs to be really understood much, much better, which is that solution spaces are only defined by the assumptions that actually frame that space. And most of the time when we're talking about, let's say, complex uh, problems, which to me are a state, not a dial up, dial down. Complexity is, it's not, you know, more or less. In the context of complexity, where you have novelty emergence and where the unknowable is a critical uh, component of what emerges and happens, then solving it is not the issue. It's first of all, being able to make sense and to grasp what's going on, and then to search for something that makes it meaningful, and then potentially talk about some solution because you've actually come to grips with where the problem is. And I mean, it's trite to say it, but of course, Defining the problem is 95% or whatever it was of the challenge. After that, the solution is, is just the, the last little bit. But the part that bothers me is that, is that the framework, essentially, which is the technocratic framework, says you're to blame. It's like the queen's question to economists after the 2008-2009 the crash. Why didn't you know that it was coming and why didn't you avoid it? And, and that's simply to say, well, you know, why don't we live in some sort of flat world where determinism and you know, reductionism prevail? Well, we don't. By definition, we live in this creative, surprising, exuberant, uh, excessive, uh, overshoot, undershoot, birth and death universe. And to try and eliminate crises, to try and eliminate excess, to try and eliminate experimentation, including failure, death, destruction, birth joining in, so entry and exit, is like to try and remove ourselves from the world, the universe we actually live in. Yeah, good, thanks. 
That's a beautiful segue for question three, Riel, because now I want to talk to Riel Miller, citizen of the world, about the futures, the, how did you say it, the sense-making and the assumptions and the meaning that you're making from yeah. the world itself now. Well, th there's one part of that. Thank you, Peter. It's, it is a, a hard question. One part of it is relatively direct and, and easy for me. Uh, which I'll get to second. Let me deal with the, the hard part first. The hard part first is that life is short and there's a lot of fun and, and, and experience and living in the moment uh, to be had. There are trade-offs uh, that we all know uh, related to time and energy and being with others and, and then justifying it from the point of view of the, the stance that I often take, which is, you know, a thousand years or 10,000 years or the maturity of the species or it's, it's a bit of a pity and one doesn't have a choice about this generally because we're we're born into the times that uh, we're born into as uh, as marx was famously quoted as saying to to make a difference or to be uh, to play leadership roles or to have grand justifications for one's actions all seem to me to be false and and, and delusional deceptive but that doesn't mean I don't live in a, in a, in a world where uh, Marvel movies with superheroes are not one of the dominant tropes. And so it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. This, in the banal terms, it's called you know, the, the, the work-life trade-off. But the, the reality is I just think it's an existential, an existential issue is that we have, we have a limited lifespan and, and life is this amazing, fantastic experience. And, and how do you get the most out of it? in ways that are that are meaningful uh, both for yourself and the world around you and and for the people you love and your friends and all that so that's that's i'd say the hardest part of my life for sure the easier part of, the, of that question really has to do with the fact that i keep i try to keep my ear to the ground uh, in terms of what resonates and what i think where i think i can add some value and there i think climate extinction and you know my kids and and the the, the young people i meet and uh, who talk about climate extinction and who are mad and who are angry um, and who feel betrayed and frightened. That's where I think there's really something that my 35 years or whatever of makes me feel like I have something to offer, so a gift to give. And there, there I think yeah. it has to do with transformation. And it, very, you know, it, it picks up on a lot of the points that, that I've already talked about. But I mean, essentially, adaptation and mitigation are continuity and planning related perspectives and all power to them. Uh, the more mitigation and the less carbon we put out, the better. The more we can adapt to the, to the destructive effects of climate change, the better, and adapt our lifestyles to being less carbon intensive, etc. Uh, all of that's very good. But the transformation part of it, which from my perspective has to do with a fundamental rethinking of the relationship of humans to the world, to move beyond the objectivist, to move beyond the, the determinist and the engineering colonial approach to the future and re-appreciate the mutual creativity of everything around us. To get there means to take a transformative path. And, and I would define transformation as something you don't know in advance. You're not, you're not transformed. You're not transformed if you know it in advance. Yeah. The very notion of transformation is that it was not something that you could understand or articulate or do before you created it. And to me, that's very, very much uh, what futures literacy 
is about. In other words, the ability to embrace anticipation for the future and, crucially, anticipation for emerging, I think offers a capability, a skill, that allows us to kind of be more open and more willing and more confident about taking a transformative posture or transformative engagement. And that transformative engagement is not domineering and not colonial uh, from the perspective of, of trying to impose our views on the future through some sort of prescient uh, planning. But it's really about much more in, in, a, in an old tradition uh, of doing and not doing, enabling emergence. And so I really hope that we can build futures literacy up as a way to change our thinking about development and to really be able to alter the way we approach well-being and value creation and to offer uh, an experimental path where experimentalism is what dominates the movement away from industrial society. So that's kind of something that feels really directly relevant to me as a person in the present moment. And I, and I think that the, the climate extinction the courage and the, and the championing has actually managed to push the discourse along. And I think it's creating an opening to talk about transformation from a deeper uh, and more powerful perspective, which I think creates an opening for futures literacy and for future studies. I spoke to someone, one of the things that actually gives me more hope for where we're going is that the young are getting really angry about really what's going on and are now becoming more political and more active in the same way that women became active in seeking uh, the vote in the uh, 19th century. And the person yeah. said, yes, the young are now basically the women of the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. The transformation that we're talking about also implies a really different perspective on governance. Yes. One which is, one which is, not, um, which is, one which is much more an assemblage approach much less a macro general approach and much uh, obviously quite a bit distanced from command and control and trying to, you know, to, to impose colonial style, our idea of the future on the future, as if we know what's better for futures, future generations and what their challenges and what their values will be. Uh, in other words, I think that we have a fundamental issue around the reconstruction, uh, reinvention of, of the way in which power and hope uh, and fear uh, are woven into our interactions on a daily basis. I mean, I, I think that we're really facing a, a wonderful, but also, of course, a hugely challenging transition from that perspective. Yeah. In Australia, and I'm sure that you saw it as well, when, when a lot of the young adult left school to protest in Australia, you know, what struck me was that, you know, the politicians just told them, just go back to school and be good students, thank you. And generally speaking, the parents were delighted the children were doing it. The teachers were delighted that the children were doing it. Yeah. The politicians were offended that the children were doing it. Yeah. The industrial era school, which remains dominant for the service economy and for uh, industrial competitive development, even if we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution, um, which remains as technocratic as always, you know, it, it's just we, we have to understand that the way in which we've approached learning has, has now become toxic and that that uh, perspective, how to create the knowledge that society thrives on is, is really completely inadequate yeah. to our capabilities from the point of view of the tools and the power that we have, but also from the point of view of our values and our aspiration. It's a, it's a big transition. 
So question four, this one is the one where we, we ask all our guests, because it's often the hardest thing that people find when they come into the field of how do you describe what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good one. Um, people, when, I, when people ask what I do, generally speaking, what I say is I say, I help people think about the future. So people come to me and I'm, I'm a designer and I use, I use the, the architect metaphor often saying, <clears throat> you know, people want to build a house or, a, or a skyscraper or a warehouse or farm or whatever they want to build. Do they build it in a mountain? Do they build it in a valley? Do they build it in a swamp? Do they use steel? Do they use cement? The architects are, are people who help design and, and build things uh, in different places with different materials in different contexts. And that's what I do when people want to think about the future. I help to design processes for thinking about the future. That's generally speaking what I say. At the moment, though, my title is, is, is Head of Futures Literacy at UNESCO. Uh, and that really means that for the last seven years since I've been here, um, I've been I've been working put into effect UNESCO's role as a global laboratory of ideas. The, that laboratory function is very very compatible, obviously, with what I've been talking about earlier: futures literacy laboratories, the development of futures literacy, the invitation of people to take a capability approach uh, to the world around them. Uh, all of that has been a part of of, of playing uh, a role in the long tradition here at UNESCO in future studies. Let's segue into the last question, because I think it is the open question which the guest talks about something that they want to talk about. And I think you suggested to me that you wanted to just talk a bit about your new role at UNESCO. Yeah, I mean, I think some, some people may be aware that we've established now, I think it's 11 uh, UNESCO chairs. Now, UNESCO chairs are these uh, university-based generally research and teaching and community engagement positions and we've, you know there's uruguay and italy uh, trento university with roberto poli and many of our colleagues in the, in the academic uh, side of things are getting on board with this but what i want to kind of draw people's attention to i think is 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 an opportunity i think that the current historical context and by which I mean, you know, pretty much all of it, <laughs> because including the advances in science and including uh, the, the, the values and discontent of young people who, who uh, don't want to repeat the anxiety of the, the in-between generation, etc. I mean, all of those these different factors, including, I'd say, the, the zombie status of many uh, 19th century institutions like the nation state and the bureaucracy, all of that, that creates an opening, I think, for future studies. There's an opportunity for future studies to really, to really make a breakthrough. And I, I, when I give a talk at Jesus College in Cambridge, when the book was, uh, was coming out, The Transforming the Future, I, I did a little bit of research into um, economics departments and uh, discovered that, that in, uh, I think it was, my memory serves, in, in 1870 or something, there wasn't a single economics department in any university in the United States. And there were only one or two courses in economics. And by 1890, all of the big universities and even most of the small ones had economics departments. And for me, obviously, it's not to fetishize or to you know, glorify the academic side of things. But I think that we have a huge amount of research to do into anticipatory systems and processes, and that we have an immense amount of research, teaching, and practice, community engagement that needs to be done around developing futures literacy in all its dimensions. And I think that if future studies uh, adopts uh, an anticipatory systems and processes perspective, building on these many chairs 
that UNESCO has been able to establish. Um, we will be in a position, I think, to, to, to see future studies take, I think, the place that it merits from the point of view of where humanity's at at the moment. And to me, that's, that's very exciting. For, 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 for some people, it's, it's, a bit, you know, it's a bit strange and a bit, a bit off-putting because people are doing what they're already doing. And many of our colleagues have been doing absolutely brilliant and amazing things, sustaining their ability to help people think about the future in more sophisticated ways. Peter, I want to say very clearly, I'm not trying to, to claim any particular language phraseology. I'm, not, I'm definitely not advocating any single methodology, and I'm not trying to champion one way of thinking about the future uh, versus another. I'm trying to, to, to do what I can, I think, uh, along with many colleagues who, are, who have been crucial in, in you know, creating all of the elements that I've been talking about, to advance, uh, as it were, um, to take advantage of an opportunity, but I think also to a certain extent a responsibility to improve the way people use the future. Because I think if we continue along the follow the lines, the, the future terrifies us or, or needs to be somehow pacified by absurd utopian fantasies, not to say that utopia is not a useful concept uh, and that utopia can be a much more dynamic perspective. We're just not be able to live our lives fully uh, and, to, and to create the societies we want. So I'm just hoping that that, that kind of... Um, aspiration certainly it is and this potential which i think unesco might offer will be something that that we can all work together on so how might people if they're interested engage with that um it's easy um i'm easy to find <laughs> riel.miller at unesco.org <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of work going on in the anticipatory systems uh, sphere with the oslo conference coming up there's the world future studies federation there's the Association of Professional Futurists. So your contact details and everything will be included on your on your future page. So basically, you should be the contact point for people who are interested in. Yeah, we're 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 open for business, welcoming everybody, and uh, trying to build uh, uh, the community as best we can. Okay. Well, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go, and I'm gonna thank you very much on behalf of the community for taking some time out to talk to us, Riel. Yes. Thank you, Peter, and, and uh, really uh, appreciate the, the, the privilege. Thank you. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.